Thank you, guys. All right, well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Uh, welcome to Trinity Church. If you're new with us today, particularly one welcome to you. My name's Pete. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. We are continuing our habit of not filling the middle. So uh, that's fine. I will just stare at some empty chairs this morning. Uh, and uh, it's cool. You know, I'll, I'll just keep mentioning it until you guys pay attention. Um, uh, I, I'll continue to make it awkward for us all, um, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, hey, it's good to have you with us. Well done uh, for getting to this point and surviving. We are the hardy ones this morning, because we all know, as the Manchester Evening News uh, announced this week, somewhat uh, apocalyptically, the worst cold ever is going around right now. So, uh, you know, <clears throat> my voice is a little croaky. I have to say, as I was preaching last week, as, uh, as the sermon was going on, I was like, I am feeling exceptionally unwell. <laughs> so uh, I'm sorry if it just kind of tailed off last week. Um, I, we, uh, we did a membership class with some of you uh, on Sunday night, and I was like, man, I feel so bad for you all having to sit in the same room as me as I am talking like this. But um, I bounced back and, uh, this morning because you probably have been infected with the Bible. Please do keep it open. Turn up Daniel chapter 3. It will help us as we... Uh, as we travel through this passage together. And uh, as, as you turn there, I, I think, as I was reading this passage this week, it just struck me again that this is one of the best stories in the Bible, isn't it? It, it is such an amazing tale. I, I'm glad that we get to spend time here this morning because what I think has happened for lots of Christians is that this has kind of become a story for kids. Do you know? It's kind of become a story for kids, which is a bit weird, really, isn't it? Hey, kids, gather around. Let me tell you about the despotic king who tries to burn people to death for not trusting in Jesus. You know, night, night, sleep tight. Don't let Nebuchadnezzar set you on fire. And we wonder where the nightmares come from. But being serious for a moment, I think as adults, we often forget what enduring power... Daniel 3 has for each of us today. We've been talking about what it means over the last couple of weeks for Christians to stay woke. We said last week that we stay woke as we are alert to God's presence and purposes in our lives, the church, and the world around us. Our engagement with the world around us, our motivation to see justice and transformation, and change in our communities, our peace and our hope in trying times is not built on the triumph of one particular political philosophy over another. Our hope is built on Jesus Christ, on meeting with and knowing him. That's what we need to be awake to more than anything else in this world, as we live and in, interact with and love and serve those around us. And Daniel 3, again, shows us how to do that. So let me pray for us and ask God to speak to us this morning as we come to his word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you uh, for this remarkable true story that we have here today in Daniel 3. Uh, and Lord, we pray now that you would still our hearts, you would open our minds. Spirit of God, you would speak to us so that we would know the truth and the reality of the things that you're saying here, so that we can apply them to our lives, and so that we might 
not only serve you better, but be filled with the hope that comes from knowing Jesus. So, Spirit of God, do your work amongst us this morning. Accompany the preaching of the gospel with power, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning I want us to talk about pressure. The overwhelming pressure that often comes upon us as we try to live for Jesus in a secular culture. We spoke a couple of weeks back about how following Jesus necessitates that we engage with the world around us as much as possible. We're not called to hide away in a monastery, but to love and serve those around us as fully functioning members of society. That's what we see Daniel and his friends doing as they embrace much of the culture of Babylon. They served the king. But whenever we do that, whenever we engage with a culture that does not know or trust Jesus, there are always moments of very real pressure where we have to decide whether we're going to go with the culture around us or we're going to live in obedience to God. If you're a Christian here this morning, undoubtedly you know the kind of thing that I'm talking about. It is hard to live and to speak for Jesus when almost everyone else around you is doing something different. It requires courage and conviction because doing so often results in negative consequences. And the pressure to conform can often feel relentless, which is what we see here today with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. King Nebuchadnezzar decides, in verse 1, to set up a huge image of gold, and he commands everyone who is anyone across the Babylonian Empire to gather together and worship it. I'm not going to read out that long list that poor El had to read out time and time and time again. You, you all were there, and you, you heard him. And of the people commanded to gather were included these three Jewish boys who worked as provincial administrators in the province of Babylon. That's what they had been promoted to by the king uh, we read in a previous chapter. Now, we don't know exactly what this giant golden image resembled. Perhaps Nebuchadnezzar was inspired by his dream in Daniel chapter 2, and he made it to resemble himself. From what we can ascertain of Nebuchadnezzar, we wouldn't put it past the man. He seems to like himself rather a lot. Or perhaps he made the statue of his God. We simply don't know. But what we do know is two things. First, we know that God had spoken clearly to his people. The first and second commandments in Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 to 5, say this. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. You know, sometimes uh, it's complicated trying to work out where Jesus wants us to draw the line when engaging with the world around us. But this time, not so much. 
that was clear to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God had spoken clearly to his people about precisely this sort of thing. That's the first thing that we know this morning about the golden statue. And the second thing that we can be certain of today is that the invitation to bow was not optional. In verses 5 and 6, the herald declares to the likely thousands of dignitaries assembled that when the music begins, they must fall down and worship. And we read in verse 6, whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now that's pressure, isn't it? Pressure to bow. And it's helpful, I think, for us to take a moment to think about where that pressure comes from. Perhaps it seems obvious to us this morning, but I think it's more subtle than we might first imagine. What we'll see as we examine the source of pressure is, I think, things that we often experience ourselves. This pressure comes first and foremost from authority. Nebuchadnezzar has commanded that this be done. And it is always difficult to directly disobey when those in authority tell us to do something. Authority is a source of pressure. As is conformity. Standing up to authority may actually not be too difficult for us in our culture. Uh, We live at a time when authority is readily challenged. But how do we feel? And just imagine that you were there that day. How do you feel when we read in verse 7 that as soon as the music started, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold? Who wants to be standing when everyone else bows? Who amongst us has not felt at one point or another the huge pressure to conform and be the same as everyone else? I'm sure I'm not the only one. And thirdly, what about the pressure to protect? This is a subtle one, but I think it's powerful. It's one thing, you see, when our actions have negative consequences for ourselves. But what about when they negatively impact those who we are closest to? In verses 8, Nebuchadnezzar's astrologers come to him and denounced the Jews. Not just Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The Jews. Their actions, these these three guys... Give their enemies a reason to hurt their fellow countrymen. These people are like Nebuchadnezzar. They do not conform. The implication is not just for them, but for all of the Jewish people scattered across the Babylonian Empire. You see, there is enormous pressure on us when our actions not only affect ourselves, but also our kids, our colleagues. Our friends, our church. You know, what happens when Jack's friends find out that his dad is an evangelical pastor? What happens when your colleagues stand to miss out 
on their commission for the month because you refuse to lie to one of your clients. Pressure comes not just from authority and conformity, but also from our right desire to protect those who are impacted by the consequences of the decisions that we make as we live and speak for Jesus. And of course, pressure comes from intimidation too. Our actions, our choices have consequences. We learn that from a young age, don't we? And Nebuchadnezzar hears that they will not bow. And in verse 13, he is furious with rage. And his message to the three men is simple. Bow or I will burn you. Of course, it's unlikely that we'll be threatened like that today. Although in some places in the world, Christians are. But the message we might hear is, bow or I will destroy your reputation. Bow or you will lose this job. Bow or our relationship will be irretrievably damaged. Bow or I will not allow you to see your grandchildren anymore. We each face the intimidation of our own blazing furnace. The consequences of deciding to stand. And the pressure placed upon us is great. And the temptation, honestly, in those kind of situations is to play politics, isn't it? Is to rationalize. Is this really a big deal? Can I appear to bow whilst, whilst not really meaning to, you know? Is there some form of words I can come up with? Some third way to navigate through the middle of this so that all parties can kind of be pleased? You know, I'll, I'll kind of, not quite bow, but just, you know, wobble. But listen, here's the reality. Sometimes, following Jesus necessitates, necessitates that we stand when everyone else bows. And that is hard. It hurts. It costs us. We would be stupid today to deny that it doesn't. And so the question is, where do we find the courage and the conviction to stand? What can help us in those moments to make the right choice, to follow Jesus faithfully. Well, Daniel, Daniel 3 shows us three things that we need to remember that will help us in those moments. And here's the first thing. The emperor has no clothes. That's the first thing we have to remember. I'm sure all of us are aware of the Hans Christian Andersen tale of the foolish emperor who's tricked into parading naked through the streets, thinking that he's wearing these clothes that are invisible to stupid people. And so everyone else, not wanting to look stupid, just pretends that they can see them look too, until a kid cries out, the emperor has no clothes, and exposes the obvious. Well, one of the dominant themes running through this chapter is that the emperor has no clothes. What the author of Daniel 3 repeatedly does is expose 
the emptiness and the powerlessness of the statue of gold. Time and time again, if you just cast your eyes across the passage in verses 1 and 2 and 3 and 5 and 7 and 12 and 14 and 15 and 18, we are told that this statue was made and it was set up by the king. Now, Ellen Sompto were like, why am I having to repeat this time and time again? The author is making a point, actually. What is the point? This statue has no power. It is an absurd creation. Why would you worship something that is nothing? Such a God cannot help you. This is not where your allegiance should lie. Now we know, don't we, very few people in Manchester today fashion idols out of gold. But so many of us trust in a whole variety of things to bring us joy and comfort and peace and security. Perhaps it's, a, it's money or relationships, family, sex, our careers, our reputation. These are the things that we are trusting in to rescue us. And so we bow, we worship, we give our lives to these things. But they're empty. They're powerless. To use the language of Daniel 3, they're set up. They're made. And we must remember that when pressure comes. These things hold no life for us. Indeed, worshipping idols is kind of like negotiating with terrorists, actually. Their demands are never satisfied. There will never come a point where you decide that what you give becomes worth it. To help us in moments of pressure, to make the right decision, we must remember that disobeying the one true living God, to bow to something that is empty and powerless, just cannot satisfy us. And is utterly foolish. It is forsaking life for death. Forsaking power for powerlessness. That's the first thing we must remember as we engage in those moments when we think, I have to stand when everyone else bows. The emperor has no clothes. But the second thing is this, and this should warm our hearts today. Our God is the God who rescues. That is the name that is given to God in this passage. Verse 15 summarizes everything that the world has to say when we choose to stand rather than to bow. This is the challenge from Nebuchadnezzar. What God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Now I hear the force of those words. I, I think, and I'm sure maybe you guys do too, I feel the force of those words. No one's ever actually said them to me. But the world says that to us time and time and time again. What God will be able to rescue you from my hand? This is the great test of our conviction. 
Do we truly believe that God is the God who rescues? These three guys, they don't actually have much to say in the Bible, though they're some of the more famous Old Testament names. We only hear their words here in verses 16 to 18 of Daniel chapter 3. But what they teach us is that the courage to stand for Jesus in the face of unimaginable pressure flows from three convictions. Three underpinning convictions in the God that rescues. And the first is this. God has spoken. We've already thought about it already. What do they say? We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. I mean, I feel like they kind of do because they're about to get thrown in the furnace. But no, what are these guys saying here? In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, let me save you some time. This is not a difficult decision for us to make. Verse 18, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Let's not have a big conference about this. We don't need time to go away and think about it. It's very, very simple. Our God has spoken. These young men knew their Bibles. They knew that to bow the knee, to worship the statue, was to disobey God. And like I've said it already, sometimes we can try and convince ourselves that what we do doesn't affect our relationship with Jesus. What does Jesus say? John 14, 15, If you love me, keep my commands. Our God has spoken. He spoke to Israel through Moses on Sinai. He has spoken to us today through Jesus. And what does he tell us? Do not bow to another. Worship God alone. Have no other gods before me. You know, often we know what Jesus wants us to do, don't we? If, if we're real with one another, we know what Jesus wants us to do. The hard part is actually deciding whether we're going to do it or not. But these men knew that if they were going to be faithful to God, there's no point talking about this. In fact, sometimes engaging with conversation just opens the door ajar to disobeying. Sometimes you just have to say, I know what is right here. I'm not going to bow. God has spoken. That's the first thing. Here's the second conviction. God is able. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Often we are so overwhelmed by the power of the world, that we forget the power of God. We look into the furnace. We feel the heat of its flames and the malice of those who accuse us and the fury of the king, and we cannot imagine a power that could even match it. But what did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say? God is able There is nothing that he cannot do. If we are thrown into the fire, we trust that he is able to save us. That is still true for us today. Whatever the furnace looks like for you, God is able. He can keep you from it. Often, our worst nightmares don't come true. Because 
God in his mercy spares us the flames. Nothing is impossible for him. We sleep secure in the shadow of the Almighty. He is the Alpha and the Omega. All power belongs to our God. God is able. One, he has spoken. Two, he is able. But here's the third thing. And this is really important. Three, God is free. God is free. He will deliver us from your majesty's hand, but even if he does not. Even if he does not. That is good theology. One of the reasons some Christians get massively discouraged is that they believe that God has spoken and that God is able, but they forget that God is free. He often allows his people to suffer. But one of the reasons why God does this is shown right here. What does it say to the king? What does it say to the crowds? What does it say to their enemies about who God is that they would willingly burn rather than bow? One of the greatest gifts we can give to the world around us as we point them to the hope and the life that is found in Jesus Christ alone is our willingness to suffer for his name. One of the early church fathers, Tertullian, wrote that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What he meant by that is that when Christians in those early days were willing to die for their faith, what you might expect happen in the Roman Empire is that everyone goes, well, I'm never going to become a Christian. Far from it. People said, if these people are willing to give their lives for this, then this must be something worth investigating. And many people, through the witness of the martyrs, gave their lives to Christ. God uses our suffering to point others to a life that is better than the life we would, we would lose. How great is the comfort that we receive from Jesus if we are willing to endure such pain? How all-encompassing is the acceptance that we find in Christ if we are willing to be so rejected? How deep the reward if we would lose everything? How satisfying is righteousness if we would not contemplate sin? God does not always save us from the fire. He can do that. He is able, but he is free. And in his wisdom, he sometimes ordains that his people suffer in this life in order to draw others to themselves, to himself. So these three convictions, God has spoken, God is able, God is free. They underpin our faith that our God is the God who rescues. Who else would we trust in? Who else would we worship? So these men stand instead of bowing. And Nebuchadnezzar in his rage has the fire heated seven times hotter and throws them into the furnace. We're not exactly sure what the furnace would have looked like. 
back, um, which uh, was around about 2000 BC, so a bit earlier than this particular one, but in the same kind of region. It looked a bit like a, um, a, railway, t a railway tunnel, bricked up at one end, and it would have been filled with charcoal with some air vents uh, running along it. Uh, and they, they estimate that heated uh, to its full capacity, it would have burned at more than 1,000 degrees. And the king watches as his attendants, oh, sorry, his own soldiers, rather, die in the flames. And he's eager, standing at the edge, at the entrance of this tunnel, maybe, to see his own enemies burn, too. Which brings us to our closing point. The emperor has no clothes. God is the God who rescues. And Jesus walks with us in the fire. Verse 24, Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? Now he knows the answer to that question, right? He's not stupid. They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Who was the fourth man? Let's ask that question this morning. You know, opinions are divided on this. Nebuchadnezzar, in verse 28, thinks that it could have been an angel. Others are happy to accept that, that it, it could well have been the angel of the Lord that, that shows up several times in the Old Testament. Of course, others have argued that this is the pre-incarnate Jesus. This is Jesus before he became Jesus, the Son of God before he took on a human flesh. All we can say for certain is that Daniel 3 doesn't actually tell us exactly who is there in the flames. But God sent someone to them to ensure that when the flames of suffering came, not a hair on their heads was harmed. They walked out of a thousand degree furnace, not even smelling of smoke. Now listen, we don't know who walked in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But we know who walks in the fire with us. The greatest fire that ever threatened us was the fire of God's own judgment that we had earned for ourselves by rejecting God, bowing readily to every golden statue that we could possibly find, and earning for ourselves an eternal condemnation. And on the cross, Jesus Christ stepped into that furnace for us. He bore the flames in his body. He was consumed. His soul was tortured on our behalf. Divine justice was quenched by divine love so that we might receive divine life. Now, if the Son of God would do that for us, then surely he will not abandon us when we take up our cross and follow him. When we walk as Jesus walked, when we stand, when the world tells us to bow. You know, Malk recently uh, uncovered the story of a man called John Bradford. Maybe some of you know who he is. So, a long time ago. And he was one of the key figures in the English Reformation. A period in history where uh, the message of the Bible uh, that we are rescued by God through faith in Jesus Christ alone was rediscovered. 
He was a, a chaplain to King Edward VI and would regularly come back to preach in Manchester. Now, some of you probably know, if you were listening in year seven history, yeah, you should have been, um, Edward VI died young in 1553. He was one of the great Protestant reformer kings. He died in his teenage years. His, ca his Catholic sister Mary took the throne and began a vicious religious persecution. And John Bradford was arrested in London. He spent two years in various different pr prisons, including the Tower of London. He was tried numerous occasions on the basis of his theology. Like, you don't get those kind of trials anymore, do you? It, it, it's all still there to, there to read. I was reading through, uh, through some of it um, a, a few days ago. Uh, he's, being, he's being asked about his opinions on communion. Well, let me, let me just say, John, Proud was, John Bradford was very certain on what he believed about communion. Um, and he was given the chance to recant, but he didn't. And in 1555, July the 1st, John Bradford was burned at the stake in London. He died, exceptionally painful death. He, and he was only in his mid-40s. He refused to bow, and so he burned. Did Jesus forget him? Did Jesus abandon him? We can say no for two reasons. First, our Bibles tell us so. God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, Hebrews 13. We know that God walks with us through the fire and that ultimately... When we pass, when our bodies die, we pass from death to life. That's the first thing. But, you know, the second reason that I say that, and, and this I hope will be a big encouragement to us this morning, uh, we, we came across this quote in the Bulletin of John Ryland's Library, volume 66. It says this, In his farewell to Lancashire and Cheshire, this, that's, a, that's a book that Bradford uh, wrote, Bradford recalls that he was in Manchester at the end of 1552. This is the last time that he came and preached in Manchester. Tradition at Blakely maintains that he preached there also and knelt to pray that there would always be true ministers of the gospel there. Jesus is still answering that prayer today. Still today. He answered it by sending a small group of Christians to plant Trinity Church in North Manchester. We're the latest link in that chain. See, John Bradford was not forsaken. Jesus walked with him through the fire. And if you know Jesus too, if your sins are forgiven by him, then he'll walk with you too, wherever he leads you, whatever it costs you to stand. And what you'll experience in those moments of crushing pressure is what John Bradford knew, is what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew, and what Nebuchadnezzar comes to confess in verse 29. No other God can save this way. So Trinity Church, stand under pressure.
Trust in Jesus because he is the one who walks with us through the fire. Let me pray and then we'll come uh, to communion together. Heavenly Father, have mercy upon us. We know, and you know, Lord God, that we are under rising pressure in many different ways in our lives. Pressure to bow and to disobey you and to not be faithful. And Lord, for some of us this morning, we need to come and confess confess cowardice, confess moments where we have let you down and uh, we have chosen to kneel. We have chosen the easy way rather than doing what you have said. And we ask that you would forgive us this morning. And we thank you, Jesus, that you went to the cross for the moments when we bow. You did not bow so that we might be forgiven. And we thank you, Sovereign God, today that you have promised to never leave us nor forsake us, that you are able to keep us from the flames, that you are able to keep us through the flames, and that, Jesus, you walk with us every step of the way. And I ask that for each of us, as we think, no doubt, about things that are going on in our lives that are hard, about those pressures that are coming in from a variety of different places. Lord God, I pray that by your Spirit you would give us the grace to endure and the courage and the conviction to stand. And Father, as we do that, I pray that many people would see and come to know that indeed you are the only God who can rescue us from these things. Draw people to yourself through our faithfulness to stand, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.